Welcome to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross, and indeed to part two of my conversation with Washington-based political strategist Mark A. Ross. For those of you who tuned into part one with Mark, you'll remember his exuberant, ebullient and entertaining style, his infectious enthusiasm for his subject. And you'll also remember that we covered a lot of ground. Mark shared his great anecdote about Clinton's candy shop in regard to exerting power and influence. We discussed the delusions required to make it as a politician, and we talked a lot about the reality of the Hill, and indeed political affairs in general beyond the media hysteria. Today we pick up the baton to discuss a wild array of topics which will enlighten you. Sanders, Corbyn and political self-sabotage, the illusion of similarity, floundering Kamala Harris, Rory Sutherland's make-it-pink boardroom strategy, problems with the polling industry, Campaign School, the mathematics behind the US election, diversity in politics, Trump disinfectant and the pirate ship of rejects, and will Trump run again? Hopefully off the treadmill. If you like my shows and weekly writings, do share on Twitter and with friends. There's no giveaway for that apart from my eternal appreciation and love, and the enormous dopamine hit you'll get by doing it. Trust me, it works. You can also find all my podcasts on all the usual platforms. Do subscribe on Apple, Spotify and others and give me a five-star review. And let me know what you think of it all here or on Twitter at Daniel S.J. Ross. Now enjoy the show. Earlier, you mentioned a list of politicians who you, you know put in this uh, in in a category of being great politicians or having good qualities, having the best talents uh, around them. Uh, one of those you mentioned, well, I said, I said good politicians. I didn't say good qualities. Good. I mean, okay, you know, good. there's okay. a difference. There's, Cor- yeah, important important correction. I stand corrected. But one of those politicians you mentioned was Jeremy Corbyn. Something that fascinates me about some political campaigns is that they appear totally self sabotaging. So, like in the U.S., I'd reference Bernie Sanders's consecutive election campaigns. That might be one example. In the UK, Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party showed this even more obviously. And what I mean to say is that they're, both their beliefs are so entrenched, they're so static, they're so stubborn, they seem so off the mainstream zeitgeist that they actually bypass any hope of real power and influence for the sake of dogma. And then in the end, I speak more for the, for the UK, but they damage their parties for it. Now, in the UK, for example, after the 2019 election, former Labour minister and new Labour architect Peter Mandelson, who I'm sure you're aware of who he is, he commented that if you actually want power and influence, you've got to create policies at either side of the centre. And if you refuse to do that and consequently only talk to a minority, then by all means do so, but remain a school debating society. Now, I found that rather amusing and painfully to the point, but the interesting question for me is how do you think Sanders and other minority figures see that dichotomy? Well, two things, like like governing, like the whole Blair, third way, yeah, Mendelssohn, like, yeah, if you want to govern, like get into Downing Street, you're probably going to have to be a bit more mainstream. Both Corbyn and Sanders, I find super interesting. You're spot on, super stubborn, surrounded by people who tell them your ideas are stupid, very small, but then they get on the campaign trail. And as you know, at the end, especially the last election, Corbyn was getting these massive crowds. Sanders is now an international political figure. He left his small state of Vermont and he's running around the country. And, you know, at a certain point, a politician is like, well, maybe I am onto something. Look at all these people. Like, clearly, you know, something's happening here. So there is that, like, kind of 
naivete, like hubris, like if I can just talk to more people, I'll keep this thing going. And then usually the election kind of sorts it out and brings it back to reality. But I think the challenge with both of those guys is that, yeah, their ideas are maybe a bit about the mainstream or aggressive to the left, but people voting aren't voting. This is why the BS stuff is so important. They're not voting on rational. They're, they're, who the hell knows why they're voting for people? Some of it is just like an F you to like the cool guys or it's like the mania, whatever it is. Like you have no idea. There are points when Corbin and Sanders were at the precipice of greatness and maybe they were for a day or two, but then reality or like getting back to the idea of like DC kind of wins or London kind of wins brings it back to reality. But if you, if you believe that, if Corbin believed that by playing Glastonbury, he was on the precipice of greatness. I mean, that was a delusion of grandeur, wasn't it? Possibly, but you know, deciding you can run the UK is a, you know, it's already, you're already full of delusions of grandeur, right? Like, you know, if you really think you'd be president of the United States, you're already a bit suspect, right? If you think you're the best person to be prime minister, I would say you're already a bit suspect. So you got to have a little bit of a delusion. Yeah. And I think, by the way, talking of BS, there's this concept of the illusion of similarity. So policymakers or politicians think very often that more people share their own opinions or attitudes to an issue than is actually the case. No, yeah. That happens like in marketing too. Like, oh, I assume everybody loves, you know, dark, happy beer. When in reality, it's like a very small slice. The marketing bias happens all the time. Like we project like what we like. Certainly more people must like it. That happens with politicians. And like getting back to the staffers, the people they hang out with day in and day out, the same people. Like Kamala Harris right now is She's just kind of floundering as a politician, right? For whatever reason, but her staff is all the same. I mean, she would benefit, I think, if she had me on her staff, like somebody completely different, right? And when you don't have like that other voice at the table and you're surrounded by the same people, most politicians suffer for this idea of like, I can just talk to more people, get out there. You know, we all know these businesses. Like if I could just get in front of more people, I could sell my toothbrush. In reality, it's the whole business. The marketing stinks, the financial model stinks, the pricing stinks. You're talking to the same people. You don't have a guerrilla strategy, that's where it becomes problematic. The reality is when you get on the campaign trail, the voters will tell you the truth. Like there's nothing better than getting on the campaign trail and just talking to voters. That is very pure. I agree. Although I think much of what politicians say, even on the campaign trail, affects voting outcomes far less than we may imagine. I think there are tail examples outside of the normal distribution of that, but I think there are too high a belief or politicians are overconfidence in, in, what, in what they say actually matters or affects. No, I agree. And I think there's a desire from those politicians to be seen doing something, right? When in reality, everything is kind of sorted. Everything is kind of solved. In fact, if they did nothing, it's probably the best thing. But we also project, yeah, when the economy's up, it's good for Downing Street. When the economy's down, like Downing Street has done something bad. When in reality, there's like so many other factors in the world. The idea that Joe Biden actually is going to affect the economy on a daily basis is complete nonsense. Now, of course, his monetary policy at a macro level could be key, but day in and day out, you know, it's complete nonsense. But we project all this kind of energy and attention and politicians want to be seen doing something. Oh, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to go there. I'm going to repair this road. I'm building this bridge. We're opening this new school. We're putting more cops in the street. They love numbers. You know, we're doing, we're adding 10,000 of X. In reality, that is where the BS and kind of nonsense kind of comes into it. I mean, by the way, business people do exactly the same. It's this self-serving post-rationalization where the reality is certainly if you take the economy, you know, it, it's, it's driven by far more randomness uh, than these guys would care to believe. No, 100%. So I want to be seen as like captain of industry, cap, you know, like it gets back to this idea. Most politicians have power. They have influence, but very little control. And they're trying to exude their power and influence and personality to shape some kind of control. I mean, that's the idea about like bending reality to your own vision, just like more will, more personality, more 
persuasion, that'll make it happen. But I don't think anybody suspected that Kim Jong-un on a, you know, Monday night was going to shoot projectile from a sub. That is such a more critical thing that happened this week than all the other nonsense of like that's being reported on. Right. By the way, uh, if you want the floor to pitch to join Kamala Harris's office... <laughs> No, it's yours. Now the pitch, I've reached out to him. I've just said, you need different voices at the table. You know, you need like a contrarian, you know, like Roy, you know, our friend Roy Sutherland, who you've spoken with, you know, he talks a lot about being in the boardroom where just the environment itself, like just being at that table kind of forces him to kind of rein in his personality, right? Because he knows right. if he offers some crazy idea, the board will be like, what the hell, you know, you're out of here. So that's like the peer pressure of politics, the setting, all that stuff. But going in there, especially if you don't care, that's the big thing. Like, are you really here to serve that politician, to serve that cat? Candidate to give them the best advice to put them in the position, that's kind of key. Like, was Dominic Cummings really there to help Boris Johnson? Or was he really, did he see Boris Johnson as a vehicle to get some of his crazy ideas into government, right? There's a lot of that. Like, is a staffer for really here to help me? Are they here, are they using me to advance their own agenda? Well, I mean, Cummings has admitted quite overtly that he saw him as a vehicle because he refers to him as a shopping trolley. So, I mean, that's, yeah, there uh, you that, go. that's out in the open, right? Right, there you go. And that's like a classic example. And after a while, Boris is like, you can't be here. This is not going to work. Rory's illustration is the boardroom, I think, which he references in his book, Alchemy, is to say, you know, actually what I would be tempted to say sometimes is that you should make this product pink. So right, exactly. A yeah. political analogy of that. And of course, most people would look at you as though you were completely bonkers. Get this ad man out of the room. Yeah, exactly. And whereas like when you're vice president, you're trying to buy all this pomp and circumstance and Kamala with the Chuck Taylors being out and about is probably better. Like Kamala, you know, in the power suit, it's a different role. It's a different, like it's a chameleon aspect of being a politician. Even Joe Biden has kind of gotten away from that Scranton, you know, aviator glasses riding around in a Corvette, right? And when you kind of deviate from that and you take out another role that the voters aren't completely familiar with, or you elevate or graduate to a different position, there's a bit of friction. So do you have staffers that are kind of reining you back in, getting you back to your true north, so to speak. I mean, the fact that Boris Johnson messes up his hair constantly is fantastic. He's just like, this is my shtick. I'm a bit of a bumbling. I'm going to use like Greek philosophy, big words nobody ever knows. I'm going to mess up my hair. Everything's always great. You know, it's good. He's a good politician. Now, is he effective? That's a whole different debate, but he's a good politician. Well, he's an effective politician. Of course, it depends what your definition is of what it, what it, what it means to be a politician, but he has been successful by the metrics of winning and holding power. Whereas like Keir Steimer, for example, like, I mean... More intellectual like, and... Uh, uh, right. And so he's, he's more able, but 100%. But he's not connecting. Like Keir Sturmer walking around Blackpool eating some ice cream, probably not going to happen, but probably should. He should be out and about in kind of the Midlands. But, he, you know, Keir Sturmer, very capable, very, I'm sure, very capable, would probably be a great prime minister. But to get the job, to shape the policy, you got to win the politics. And that's like always the key politics. It's the word charisma, which is often attributed to those who succeed in those roles. Right. Which sounds, like you know, kind of dodgy and like unsettling. But most people that succeed, in the world have a bit of charisma. You're selling your ideas. Like, how do you bring people along? How do you communicate? And basically, how do you connect with them? And the That's best right. politicians, as we talked about, they can walk into a Fortune 500 company, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the CEO, but they can also go to the diner and order a cheeseburger and tell a joke or talk about the local football game. Like, to me, in America, you should read the New York Times and the Washington Post, but you should also read the USA Today and, like, find out what's going on in the Daily Mail. Like, having this high-low approach, right? You're highfalutin, but you're also, like, you're paying attention to kind of the goofy drama on, you know, 
know, reality TV or you know enough about who's winning football games or losing. That's important. That also reflects our greater polarization, right? I mean, most of us sit in our own permanent echo chambers, hearing and rehearing the same opinions, those that we want to hear and bashing those that we that we dislike. And we don't come to the middle to discuss and debate. No, 100%. There's a great book called The Clustering of America that kind of breaks down the zip codes in America. You know, and essentially there's other books like The Nine Nations of America. It's much more so about culture, right? And kind of how you spend your day. Like, where do you go? Where do you shop? Income is not really a good measurement. Neither is kind of birth year. It's really like, how do you spend your day? Where do you go? Who are you surrounded by? I remember going door to door on campaigns. And if you saw an American flag, you could make some assumptions about the house. If you saw a camper, you saw like fishing gear. If you saw lacrosse equipment, you know, the car they're driving, like kind of processing all this information, you can make some assumptions, right? If you go to a gym, if you commute 45, all these different like elements are kind of important. But if you're staying around the same people, and this happens all the time, like Marin County is San Francisco, right? Or Marin County is just outside of San Francisco, very posh, very left-wing county, fantastic, great place to live. But getting more votes in Marin County is great, but it's not going to get you to the White House, right? It's the ability to kind of connect to these different parts of America that are super important. Talking of which, I wanted to actually ask you about polling and forecasting as we sort of think about what it takes to win an election and how you plan a campaign. We know that election polls are often very wrong. Actually, going back to the thought of advertising, it was, I think you mentioned David Ogilvy earlier, but he, the great ad man, apocryphally said that consumers don't think how they feel, they don't say what they think, and they don't do what they say. So we know people behave differently in the polling booth to the vox pop on the street, but why do you think that is? And maybe more interestingly, are there better ways? Are there better questions to ask voters to predict outcomes more accurately? And why, why are we going so wrong with polls? I would say three things in defense of the bowling industry. Most polls are not designed to like tell you what's happening. They're designed to influence what they want to happen. They're used to clear out the field, shape opinion, drive donations. There's no universal mandate on how to conduct a poll. You could do it by email. You can do it by phone. You can do it face to face. You could have a sample size of 100. You give a sample size of 1,000. The poll could be three questions. It could be 30 questions. I think the way we consume polls is really the problem because we got to be more, what is the pollster trying to do to me? Or why Why am I getting this data? It's kind of, you got to be a bit more sophisticated as an end user. I think generally polling is pretty accurate, pretty professional. Even the polling for Hillary versus Trump was accurate in the sense, in terms of the popular vote, Hillary got more. She won by two or three points. But when you go to electoral college, the way our, our system is actually done, state by state, you know, Trump found enough way to get the job done. And the polls in the last election for 2020 with Biden and Trump Trump were very accurate. So I think polling is good. I think it's really the way we consume the polls. You know, obviously I'm a professional, you know, kind of DC communications, public affairs person. So I absorb polling differently than the average person. Also, polling is really done, especially when the media is doing it, to kind of drive the narrative, tell the story. I mean, I think it's really criminal, frankly, that any news organization would run a poll. Like that, it's not really news. Like for the Washington Post or the New York Times, or, you know, I don't even know if the papers in the UK run polls, but the Economist, you know, does polling why a newspaper that's supposed to be reporting what's happening would go out and basically create news around polling is, you know, I think kind of disingenuous because then that I've shapes always, the narrative. I've always, as a, as a parallel, found it rather bizarre that the US tradition of the TV channels calling states. I mean, maybe that's harmless, but it's always struck me as a rather bizarre way of following the election result. 
Well, it's actually not if you do mathematically. So most when you go to campaign school, for example, really to win an election becomes a mathematical problem. To keep the math easy, let's say there's 100,000 people that could potentially vote in your constituency. Half of those aren't going to show up. So then you're down to 50, right? That are actually 50,000 people are actually going to vote. All you need is 25,000 plus one to win the election. So then mathematically, you say, how am I going to get, let's say to keep it easy, 26,000 people to vote for me. And then you're like, oh, there are five main constituencies. I need to get 5,000 votes from each one of these constituencies or 5,500. And that's how you do it. And you go after it. Literally, it's a mathematical formula. And if you look, when you go to campaign school, you're taught to look over elections over 10 years. And there's very little difference. Usually presidential years, more people vote than an off-year election. But the numbers are pretty consistent within a ban. So you know, going into an election, I'm going to need, you know, 50,000 people to vote for me. I'm going to spend $5 to get a vote. Except you do math and like literally it's math. So the prediction stuff, when states call or when news outlets call states, what they do, they're really, there's 11 counties in the US that if you win those counties, you're probably going to be president of the United States based on tradition, history, trends, et cetera. And they go into those counties and they mathematically figure out that this person got enough votes that they're safe enough to call. So for example, in Ohio, Cuyahoga County is Cleveland, Ohio. It's a Democrat county. For a Republican to win statewide in Ohio, they're going to lose Cuyahoga County for sure, right? Because it's a heavy Democrat county. But the question is, are they going to lose it by less than 150,000 votes, right? So if they lose that county by 140, 140,000, votes, there's a pretty good chance there's going to be enough votes in the rest of the state to overcome that. But they lose that county by 200,000 votes. There isn't enough votes in the other you know, 80 plus counties to kind of come back. So the mathematics of campaigning is completely legitimate. Like that is like a huge thing, especially at a, any kind of serious campaign. That's what they're focused on. There's like key precincts, key districts, key counties. And you'll see like where they're spending time, where they're spending resources. So I'll tell you a story. In 20, my math is going to be Bush's re-election, I guess, 2004. I was in Portage County, Ohio for the last three weeks of the campaign as a super volunteer for the Bush campaign. I was in a Democrat county. We knew we were going to lose the county. Our goal is to lose it by less than we did in 2000, right? That is like, let's get more Republicans to show up. We know we're going to lose. Let's lose it by less. Let's reduce that delta. And that's what we did. And we did that in 50 counties and Trump won that state by 150,000 votes. So basically we lost 50 counties by a thousand less votes. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that was the difference. And when you got like time, resources and money, that's like a serious operation. So no, the county thing is like super important. Like Wood County, Ohio, like where I grew up, if you win that county, you're probably going to be president. Like Duval County and Jackson, there's like certain counties in the certain states where they just carry more weight than the rest of it. Because the other counties are going to go so Democratic or so Republican that it's all about reducing that delta. That's great. That's really fascinating. I'm really glad I asked that question. Even that's though cool. It's a bit mathematical and boring, but it's like it's completely legit. Like I said, at campaign school, you figure, you're like this. These many people are probably going to vote, and out of that, I need like 50 plus one. So how am I going to get you know 50 plus no, one? It, it's not boring. At all. It's not boring at all. I'm, actually, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm really I'm I'm really glad I provoked that answer. Even though my question actually was probably a little more banal, the answer was far more sophisticated. So I'm glad you explained all that. Now, one of the certain th- counties that are just like super counties, like if you really want to know what's happening in America, like Aurora County, which is like a county outside of Denver, if you set up shop there in a presidential election, just spend time there. You'll have a good idea who's going to be the president. Wow. Interesting. Now, we talked a little about decision making and you referenced a number of times the importance of having like talent around you as a politician to support you. My question is actually about diversity then, and you can answer this probably from more of a US perspective because that's what you know better, but take as wide a frame of references as suits. Do you think that governments in general general have enough diversity in them to make good decisions. And I mean that both in terms of perhaps the sort of superficial demographics, but also in terms of expertise, breadth of experience in order so that they can challenge their leaders enough. 
No, never. <laughs> I mean, in a word. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of a weird thing to go into politics. You probably come from a more privileged background. I mean, because there's no money in politics, right? I mean, it's a completely absurd way to make a living. Even today, my parents are they are completely baffled that anybody could make money being professionally connected to public affairs, communications, and politics. Um, so no, you probably come from a pretty privileged background. You're probably, I mean, you're well educated, maybe like overly educated, um, generally ambitious. So yeah, there is there isn't, and it's hard. To get into like nobody in my family was in politics. I mean, we voted and stuff and we paid attention, but there was nobody to the extent that I'm in politics now. Like, nobody in my family was like that. And I remember when I first got to DC, you know, I went to a state school in Ohio and I was chatting with this kid and he's like, Oh, yeah, my dad is like the governor of Washington. Okay, that's pretty like he got the job because the old man, the governor, was like, Hey, can you hire my kid or get this internship? You know, I mean, there's a lot of that that goes on. I think what's interesting about the staffers is a third of them come here after college because it's kind of like a cool thing to do. It's good for the resume. They're going to go to grad school. They want to do something else. Or their parents thought it'd be a good cultural experience to kind of work for the senator. Um, you have a third of the people here that are like, they're super passionate. They're super into policy. Like they want to change the world. They want to, you know, let's say their passion is green energy or they want to change the tax code, those kind of things. And then you have another third that are really good. I would fall into that bucket, like kind of the politics, the communications of it. And the key is you just got to kind of grind it out and survive. But a lot, most staffers show up here just for the experience. And those that stay after five or six years, really probably want to make a career out of it. And then, you know, as a staffer, you make a reputation for yourself. Politicians want smart, intelligent people around them that kind of can help them get where they want to go. And they kind of gravitate to each other. I mean, the first, like I said, I grew up in Ohio. The first member of Congress I worked for was from Texas. And it was a bit random, but serendipitous how I got in there, but incredibly fortunate, right? And he had staff, of course, from Texas as well, but he had staffers from all over the country. You know, like Nancy Pelosi is speaker. Certainly she'll have staff from California, but I would guess two thirds of her staff is like from around the country. Some of the most talented political operatives. It's also part of surviving. One of the first things I learned, you know, somebody sat me down and says, we don't ever want to see your name in the Washington Post, right? I don't do anything stupid for one. Don't do anything scandalous. Don't create a problem for the member of Congress. You're expendable. Nobody cares about you. You're rotatable. And be careful what you say when you're out and about, you know, be kind of discreet, be kind of like, don't trust everybody. So those are all lessons. And that that's part of the process. But I think most staffers by and large are here because they want to do the right thing and they care about politics. It's certainly not for the money. For sure. But do you think, thinking of the diversity question that, for example, Obama and Kamala Harris's right, respective rises to power have any meaningful trickle-down effect? Yeah, for sure. But it's not like a normal, you know, you don't get recruited to, there's nobody coming to campus. There's no like job fair for politics. There's nobody recruiting. There's no HR department. There's no kind of team building, you know, kind of corporate feel-good nonsense. DC is a bit like Hollywood. You got to show up. You got to be here. You probably got to get an internship. You probably got to work your way in. You have to have a little bit of hustle, a little bit of grit. Like a U.S. senator is not doing a job fair to hire people, right? And that U.S. senator also has got to hire some donors, like their kids. They have other constituencies. There might be special interests to make sure on their staff. I do think that there's no doubt Obama, Kamala Harris getting involved is super helpful, but there's other, especially in American, like Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans that are probably unrepresented and not part of the political process, getting them involved, knowing where to start. Because getting back to our initial conversation about kind of power and influence, I mean, the system is set up to be very austere, very intimidating, you know, big buildings, gothic columns, marble, fancy desks. I mean, it's really designed to kind of push to not be inviting. I think, and it's interesting that one of the challenges that the Biden-Harris administration kind of run into, you know, they're almost coming up on a year in office. They're way behind on staffing, even at the ambassadorial level, and even with uh, key staffers at various agencies, because they wanted to be much more reflective of America, have much more people of color in the administration, different voices. And they haven't found enough people to fill these roles.
roles and they're coming up a year in office and in some ways have lost time because they could have put other staffers in there to kind of help advance their agenda. So sometimes good ideals, good targets aren't always the best way to operate a government. So what you're saying is it's a mix of some candy store nepotism and perseverance, basically, which gets you in. Yeah, it's always going to be the easiest, but you're probably not going to survive. But the perseverance and grittiness is the key. Like I've dealt with a lot of kids that are like, I want to work in D.C. Okay, so do a thousand other kids. There's nothing here in your resume that indicates that you have any special talent or, you know, the only way I can see if you're any good is if you do an internship, kind of grind your way in. Are you resourceful? Are you smart? Can you work under pressure? Those kind of things. There's no like Capitol Hill job fair for a member of Congress or work on a campaign. So it's a bit being certainly in the right place at the right time, but be having a little bit of grittiness to you. DC is like Hollywood. If you want to be in DC, you got to be in DC. You can't be in DC from uh, Columbus, Ohio. That makes sense. Now, as a final question, before we come to the quick fire, let's return to your home patch in DC and to the subject of influence where we started. And why not finish thinking about your ex-president? Because that's fun. And maybe uh, a future president. Well, man, you're, you're, <laughs> please welcome your past and future. Um, when I think about Donald Trump's contribution to US politics, the best analogy that comes to mind is of a temperamental pit bull terrier accidentally let off the leash who crapped on the Oval Office carpet left a toxic smell and stain. Is there any disinfectant that can remove the damage or do you think his smell will remain? I remember when he first got elected, I was like, oh my God, in like 20 years, there's going to be elementary schools named after this guy. It's like part of our permanent record will be Donald J. Trump. There is no disinfectant for that. There isn't enough cleaning polish to kind of remove that. But listen, 35 million Americans voted for him. You know, he has a constituency. He connects with a lot of people. You got to remember too, Trump's been in our lives for nearly 40 years and some fashion. He flew with running for president two other times. He was on a major television show. He was in people's living rooms for over a decade. He's a huge freaking personality. I mean, the guy is freaking relentless. You know, I was in Chicago this past weekend. He has a building there, Trump letters, 20 feet high, superimposing. He is a classic American story for good or worse. The persistence, the bulldogness, completely shameless. I mean, the guy literally is so relentless. He doesn't care. Where it's dangerous, he doesn't really know what he's doing. And he's surrounded by people like that want to use him to get their kind of evil bad ideas and that's when it becomes problematic. The thing is like nobody's really ready to be president and you're probably better prepared to be president after doing it for four years, right? I don't know, maybe a Trump second administration would be better. I mean, in some ways, if he had just done infrastructure, you know, not been so crazy with the Russians, his approach to North Korea is kind of interesting. He certainly changed the judicial branch in this country for a generation, which a lot of conservatives will love him for. It's a complicated answer. The collection of misfits who formed his, at least his initial team of advisors, it seemed that these were all rejects harboring grudges, right? So they, you know, they were all ready to fire. No, your instincts are spot on. Getting back to staffers and kind of personalities, a lot of the people that were on Team Trump were rejected from the Mitt Romney campaign, from the Bush campaign. Every political organization, I don't care if you're the Catholic Church, the Communist Party of China, the Democrat Party, the Republican Party, they're all filled with factions. And when you have a field of 16 candidates, you only need a plurality. And Trump just kind of squeezed his way in there with a third. And all the fanciest degrees and the posh resumes had gone with other candidates. And Trump was a pirate ship. And a lot of people got on that pirate ship and they wrote into the Oval Office. You may think Trump is crazy. And I mean, all this stuff is true, but he freaking won. He at least got himself into the office one term. Like standing for a second term is where the wheels fell off. And obviously he didn't have the right staffers around him to get the job done. I mean, he never reached his full potential. There's a lot of things he could have done if he checked his ego at the door, brought in some professionals that knew what they were doing. He'd probably still be in office. Well, if he'd managed COVID only 20% more effectively, he may well still be in office. 
Correct. A lot of things were self-forced errors. All the chaos was his own doing. I mean, he benefited from no serious military adventurism, no really serious kind of global public affairs, financial crisis. It's all his just kind of crazy hyperbolic nature that got him into trouble, his fragile ego. And ego is a dangerous thing when you're a politician. You won the election. Great. Check your ego. Get some good staff. Focus on two or three things. You'll be a hero. Will he run again? I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good feel. He's certainly the most popular Republican. The media loves him. He still gets a tremendous amount of coverage. I don't know. He's going to be old, a lot of lingering financial issues. If he doesn't run, there's going to be a cast of like 60 people. If, if Joe Biden doesn't run, you're going to have like 60 candidates. And there's really no superstar Republican out there. So I think he runs. I mean, why not? What else do you have to do? Fair enough. <laughs> Exactly. He might be bored in Florida by then. I think it's going to be interesting. There's an election here in Virginia for the governor's race, which I would encourage your you know, listeners. That'll get a lot of attention just because it'll give some of the political press to talk about. That's in early November. If Terry McAuliffe's a Democrat, he was governor previous. He loses. That'll be a huge tidal wave of problems for Joe Biden, just from like in terms of perception of the political press. And then you have the midterm election in 2022. Trends suggest that the party out of the White House traditionally does really well in the House of Representatives. So with a small majority there, the Republicans probably take over the House of Representatives, maybe even the Senate, and you have a whole new ballgame. Biden will be decidedly on the back foot, though. I don't know. It could be a good environment for Trump. There's a famous saying, like, a week in politics is years or something crazy like that. And, you know, to speculate what's going to happen in two or three years, hard to say. But getting back to one of our other conversations, I mean, clearly Trump is putting himself and his staffers, his team, are putting him in a position. If he wants to run, it's there for him. And I think as a good politician, you're always, like, putting yourself in a position to succeed and kind of do other things. Shall we do some quick fire? Sure. Cool. Okay, here we go. Don't think about these two much. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Kindest thing anybody's ever done for me. I had some neck surgery. My wife took care of me for 30 days. It was pretty amazing. (laughs) Are you well recovered? I am. Yeah, it was like five years ago. But yeah, when you can't open a door and you can't walk very well, pretty humbling. What's your most powerful memory? I think the Ronald Reagan coming to my hometown in 84. I was 13 years old. I just became really enamored and obsessed with politics. It was such like a circus coming to town. Like just the whole atmosphere was like a rock and roll concert. And our eighth grade teacher, I was taking civics at the time, she famously said, if you could predict the outcome of the Electoral College, you'll get a point, right? Like bonus points. And famously, that's when Reagan ran the table, essentially winning every state except Minnesota and the District of Columbia. And I predicted a landslide. So I collected like 300 bonus points. I was like obsessed with like watching politics and C-SPAN at an early age and all kind of played into it. And I was always really good at it. And Reagan coming there and connecting like politics, geography, history, economics, this all kind of came together. So that was a really profound moment. Great. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Most don't. I don't know. I feel like I'm a pretty open book. I was going to say, I wish I was a professional surfer, but I think my close friends probably know that. Fair enough. Well, <laughs> I, I either, will, either will say you're a to-be professional surfer one day or something might might pop into your head. We've got just a couple more to go. Which book do you gift most regularly? Depends on the uh, recipient. Recently, I've been giving out a Rory's book a lot, Alchemy, which I think is fantastic. There's a book by Blair Ends called Win Without Pitching, which talks a lot about persuasion, communications. I think it's a fascinating book, kind of changes the mindset around sales, thought leadership. The Ogilvy book is fantastic. For politicos, though, I think there's a book about the 88 election by Ben Kramer called What It Takes. Fascinating book. It's like 600 pages. It follows all these politicians, all this crazy stuff they've got to do to kind of get into the Oval Office. It captures the day in and day out of a politico. That's a fantastic book. Like everybody is like, I want to run for office. I'm like, you have to read this book because you've got to understand it's not the West Wing. It's not a television show. It is an absolute slog. And oh, by the way, half the people you're going to talk to, they 
think you're a putz. So what it takes is a really good book. Have you read the Robert Moses biography by Robert Caro? I haven't, but I've read his stuff on Johnson. I haven't read the Caro book. Obviously, I've heard it's masterwork and I need to yeah. read it. I've got it by my bed. Started yeah, it. yeah, yeah. It's the biggest, largest brick of a book I've uh, but it's fantastic. I was in New York a few weeks ago driving on some of those roads and I was just thinking about just the colossal influence that guy had. That's a huge book. And Caro's writing style is absolutely fantastic. His books on Johnson are just some of the best books on power influence, how government actually works, the level of detail. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. The the other one which is worth reading is Caro's own memoirs about his writing and his life, which that's a, that's a very easily digestible book as a starting point. No, he's uh, an amazing author. He's a, a national treasure for sure. One other book I'd recommend actually by Tim Shipman on your side of the pond is All Out War about the Brexit vote. Absolutely fantastic. One of the best political journalists. You know, I encourage a lot of my American friends to pay attention to other elections around the world because there's always lessons we learn. I mean, even the recent election with Canada with Justin Trudeau calling that snap election, which resulted in nothing <laughs> changing. But Shipman is a fantastic writer. And that Brexit vote can be one of the most seminal things we'll be talking about for a generation until I predict the UK goes back to the European Union. <laughs> one day, maybe. That's another discussion. Yeah, I think we didn't quite realize how good we had it. That's another story. What's your desert island music? Well, yeah, I think it's very contextual. I find myself whenever I'm in the islands per se, like in the Caribbean, I just love listening to reggae. But I've been listening to this band out of Canada called The Tragically Hip for a long time. So I'd bring along some of that, you two, and just as much jazz as I could possibly carry with me. Anything with a blue note label. I would try to uh, bring with me to the island. And lastly, winding down away from work, tell me a bit more about your hobbies. I think generally just traveling, I find just absolutely fantastic. I love getting on a plane, a train, just going somewhere. I love having good meals, good cocktails, some wine. So pretty simple. Get on a plane, go somewhere fun, have some good meals. I'm a man of the people. I keep it very basic. Hopefully all that will be coming back very soon. With that, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. I think we've covered so much ground. It's been enormous fun shining a light on the political toupee. So thank you very much for sharing your wisdom and I look forward to catching up with you very soon. Daniel, absolute treat. And uh, always great to chat with a fellow Ross. But no, Daniel, thanks for having me on the show. I love the concept of a load of BS. Absolutely brilliant title. I wish I would have thought of it myself. This is a real pleasure. Yeah, hopefully we'll meet face to face in 2022 in some dodgy part of London where we can have some covert conversations about politics and behavioral science. That will be my great pleasure. Thanks, Mark. There ends my two-parter with Mark. What I love about these podcasts is their variety and I'm lucky to chat with individuals from such an array of backgrounds who share alternative perspectives on human behaviour. If you like it half as much as I do, please leave me a five-star review on whichever platform you're consuming this. Please subscribe and follow me both on aloadofbs.substack.com and on your favourite podcast platform. When you do that, it gives me the heart to keep doing more of this. So spread the word and I'll be with you next week when talking of fresh perspectives and exceptional people i'm talking to ex-england football international and super broadcaster gary lineker about the psychology of sport till next time